According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Isaiah once again. This is our 41st week in the book of Isaiah, and so we are turning to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. Picking up where we left off last week, mounting up with wings like eagles, running and not getting tired, walking and not becoming weary. The uh, very concept that concluded chapter 40 will come back again very early in chapter 41, where the nations, the coastlands, are being admonished to uh, take advantage of uh, the uh, strength. As it says in verse 1, coastlands, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. And so coming together to gain new strength, it ended chapter 40, it begins chapter 41 in a message that is addressed to the coastlands, addressed to the Gentile nations here in this chapter. Before we get started, we're going to take a moment for silent prayer. This is going to give every believer priest the opportunity to quiet your heart, to humble your soul, to get in fellowship if confession of sin is necessary, to prepare your heart for the eternal truth of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, the blessing of the assembling of ourselves together. This is a grace provision, Father. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Who are we that we should have the mind of Christ? But Father, you have so blessed us and you have made your will known. You have gifted us with a local body, with a gifted pastor, with brothers and sisters, with born-again believers that have the word of God as a priority. And Father, we thank you that this morning the word of God is going forth. It will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And we do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Even during Israel's stewardship, Gentile nations should have paid heed to what the Lord revealed to his covenant nation. Israel was the covenant nation on this earth. And their neighbors, their immediate neighbors, had the best proximity, the closest proximity. But even the ends of the earth should have sent messengers to learn from the word of the Lord in Jerusalem. Sadly, it happened very little in Old Testament times. They're only in a few brief stretches of Israel's history. The reign of David, the reign of Jehoshaphat, uh, the reign of Hezekiah. Did such Gentiles arrive in Jerusalem to receive such teaching? Uh, But this is how we start in verses 1 through 4. Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. The primary method for divine communication is the monologue method of a communicator saying, thus saith the Lord, and humble people receiving the word of uh, of the Lord, as it says here, in silence. Then let them come forward, then let them speak, as they will give their amen and their assent to what it is they are commanded to do. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, 
Yahweh, that is the Lord, am the first, and I am with the last. I am He. All right, here we have our first four verses of the chapter, and so much doctrine packed in here, I want to spend a month just detailing these verses alone. That's not our format. We're doing one chapter per week per week, and next week will be chapter 42, and then 43, and so forth. So, um, we're not going to get the, the total depth of what we would get otherwise or in other formats that uh, we typically pursue. But understand, though, Gentile nations should wait upon the Lord and gain new strength. The very new strength that was promised at the end of chapter 40 is what these coastlands are being admonished to start chapter 41, new strength. Remember chapter 40 we, we dealt with last week. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And we discussed it a week ago on an individual basis, how a believer walking in the faith, walking in the, in the strength which God supplies, receives the spiritual strength that he needs to run with endurance the race that's set before him. And we typically think of this on an individual basis for personal, individual application. But when we turn into chapter 41, we start to see, wait a minute, this principle also applies on a national basis. As a nation, as a corporate body, as a people, are we waiting upon the Lord? Or do we just have a remnant here and there? Do we have a few thousand that haven't bent the knee to Baal as a remnant, whereas by and large as a people, are we waiting upon the Lord? Is it fair to say that the American people are waiting upon the Lord as a corporate body, as a nation? being led by our, our national leaders to do so, or our state leaders to do so, or our local leaders to do so? Are we as a people waiting on the Lord? Or have we as a people shoved God off onto second-class status and we're too busy pursuing temporal life that uh, we have no room for God in public life? Because by golly, we've got separation of church and state. There should be this wall built up. And in our public life, we can't even acknowledge that there is a God. All right? See, I told you, I could unpack this for weeks and not even get out of verse 1. But as a people, listen to me. Let the peoples gain new strength. I think President Garfield used to preach revivals on the White House lawn and uh, as an evangelist and a, and a gospel preacher. Right? It's been a while since we've had days like that. And it comes right down to it. All right. So if we want to learn, if we want as a nation to be blessed, we better pay attention to what the God of Israel has revealed. We better observe what God is accomplishing in our day and age. We want to understand it's not just Old Testament. New Testament as well says that our times are in God's hands. Acts chapter 17, if you're not familiar with it, tells us that the boundaries of our habitation, our appointed times, and the boundaries of our habitation are in the sovereign control of Jesus Christ who controls history. All right, and so it's critical that we understand current events with a spiritual backdrop. The Lord arouses conquerors in the achievement of his purposes. God's the one who's doing this. And you can read all the secular history books you want about who won the Battle of Marathon and who won the Battle of Thermopylae and who won the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Bulge and all these other things. And the secular history books will not tell you that as per Isaiah chapter 41, Yahweh has called his champion, and Yahweh is directing human history. Why is it that we have these mighty angels that are brought to bear in the book of Daniel, for example, the uh, prince of Greece, who is about to come and overthrow the prince of Persia, as is described in Daniel chapter 10? Why is that? The secular history books will never record it. They'll just simply say, 
uh, Alexander the Great defeated Darius. All right, game over. Persians lose, Greek win. Uh, the Greeks win, and history moves on. But they're only approaching it from the human basis about why battles are won and why battles are lost. Why do empires rise? Why do empires fall? Well, if you have biblical norms and standards, you know who's in charge. And God's in charge of all of this. So he arouses his conqueror. Here we have it in verse 2 and verse 3. He has aroused one from the east. What is it that gives a guy an idea that says, hmm, I'm going to stand up and start conquering places, <laughs> right? And uh, what is it that drives an Alexander or a William or, or what have you, William the Conqueror or what have you? And again, the secular historians will say, well, there was politics involved and there was friction between the Normans and the French and, and William was really just kind of a bastard trying to make a name for himself anyway. And so he crossed the English Channel to make a, some kind of a claim for the throne there. And, uh, and uh, anyway, they have all these earthly explanations for why Harold was no good and William was better and, and why the Normans had to sweep into England and, and win the Battle of Hastings. Okay? Man, that was a side trip. But the scriptures, the scriptures tell us that William the Conqueror was aroused, okay? He was aroused, different kind of arousing, but it's an arousal. Why did he rise? Why did he conquer? Because the Lord did it. Who has aroused one from the east? Later in the chapter is another arousal, one from the north, that we'll see coming uh, further down, verse 25 of the same chapter. It says, uh, I have aroused one from the north. And he has come from the rising of the sun. He will call on my name and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads the clay. So God is in charge of this. He is in charge when a conqueror rises and starts to conquering and when he wins because it's the good pleasure of the Lord for him to win. So God's in charge. We can be thankful for that. Uh, verse three, he pursues them, passing on in safety. He just can't lose. He wins every battle. He's, he's chasing them when they run. By a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Anyway, he's not winning the battle because uh, he's so smart. He's not winning the battle because he had traversed it with his feet. He'd done the right recon. He'd done the right military tactics. He's winning the battle because God is driving the forces before him. And he's winning the battle. It's a concept that's going to come back again in chapter 44, chapter 45, chapter 46. I don't want to spend a, a lot of time on it this morning, but just give you some things to think about. At the end of chapter 44, he actually gives a name to this conqueror. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He prophetically announces the name of Cyrus hundreds of years before Cyrus arrives, which is why the Bible skeptics, you know, God haters and Bible skeptics say, well, this must have been written later. There must have been a second Isaiah and a third Isaiah and some, some frauds after the fact that were writing anonymously trying to pose as if they were Isaiah. And they say it's too accurate. It couldn't have been written ahead of time. Well, wait a minute. This is the same Isaiah who said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is the same Isaiah who prophesied the virgin birth of Jesus Christ 700 years ahead of time. So uh, the idea of naming a king like Cyrus just 100 years ahead of time is not as big a deal, at least not in my mind. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. This is chapter 45 now. We'll be here in a couple of weeks. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that uh, gates will not be shut. 
I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. See, God is the one that gives the spiritual victory, the the military victory in these conquests. These men are tools in God's hand. We want to be clear on that. Back to chapter 41 now. The victory of this conqueror. So who's he talking about here? Arousing one from the east. Is he talking about the Babylonians? Is he talking about the Persians? Is he talking about Jesus Christ at Second Advent? Okay. Or is it a combination of both near and far prophecies? These are the kind of studies you have to do when you stop and you slow down and you take it verse by verse and word by word, not chapter by chapter like we're doing today. Who has performed and accomplished it? I love the doubling of that verb in verse 4. Performance is not accomplishment. (laughs) There's a lot of people that are great on performance, but they're not accomplishing anything. All right? And some people, they accomplish an awful lot, but they're terrible on performance, if you think about it. Anyway, God does both. God performs, God accomplishes, and He does so for a reason. It's not enough for God simply to win. But God, in the resolution of the angelic conflict, is redeeming humanity and demonstrating to all of angelity the righteousness of God, that He is both just and the justifier. That's why we we understand the the operation of the church and the unfolding of the angelic conflict and how God is, we are on display to the rulers and the authorities because God is not only about the achievement but also about the performance to display His mighty wonders, to do what only He can do. Because really, Satan and that whole crowd, their, their great downfall is the fact that they are vowing to be like God. And God is demonstrating that they're not. He does what they cannot do. He does what only he can do, thus proving that only he is he. All right? I am, and I am the only I am, is what God is saying in this chapter and uh, several of these chapters in the 40s. Uh, Isaiah 43, 44, 45 are filled with these taunts on, on the Lord's part. He's teasing them. He's taunting them. He says, oh, you think you're, you think you're like me, huh? Can your, can your voice thunder? Can your arm save you? There's a lot of uh, taunting in these chapters. So who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. Understand, every angel out there has a beginning. And they weren't around in the beginning because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every one of these fallen angels and the elect angels, but every angel is a finite being who had a beginning after the beginning in which God created the heavens. And so we see it here. I, the Lord, am the first. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is the beginning of the creation of God. He is the, uh, the in hypostatic union, the creation, the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ, and the uh, uniting of the humanity of Jesus Christ to the deity of God the Son is the first act, the alpha moment of time. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. No angelic being can claim this, only Yahweh Himself. And so we have a tremendous study to pursue here. The Alpha and Omega message. The eternal plan of God calls for the maximum eternal glorification of 
Jesus Christ. If you've ever been around here very long, you've probably picked up on that. It's the main theme of the Plan of God Reader. It's the main theme of what we talk about when we preach the dispensation of the fullness of times. What happens in the new heavens and new earth after the millennium? God the Father is magnifying His Son for all eternity. And you and I need to get on board with His program. If we're magnifying God the Son, we're fellow workers with God the Father. If we're magnifying ourselves or whatever, (laughs) if we're doing anything other than magnifying Jesus Christ then we are not fellow workers with God the Father. We are enemies. We have put ourselves in an adversarial position. Anytime we serve ourselves instead of serving Christ, anytime we denigrate the glory of Jesus Christ, we're serving the adversary. We're agreeing with the liar who said, I will be like the Most High God. Obviously, we want no part of that. The uh, Isaiah, Alpha and Omega message. This concept is brought into Revelation's Alpha and Omega message. Because it's not only here. We're going to come to this again and again and again and again. We saw it in verse 4, with I the Lord am the first and with the last I am He. It comes back in chapter 43 in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, there will be none after me. This is the I am message of the, or the Alpha Omega message of Isaiah, chapter 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, there is no God besides me. If you think you are, you better prove it. (laughs) Okay? And we'll talk about that in uh, chapter 44. Verse 7 says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. (laughs) All right? Don't miss any steps. We'll talk about that coming up in a couple of weeks. We'll get to chapter 44. I'm looking forward to that. Chapter 48 and verse 12 is the last of these Alpha Omega beginning and end, first and last statements. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. It goes on to describe. All right. You get into Revelation, you've got the Alpha and Omega, first and last, is given in chapter 1. It's given again in chapter 2. comes back at the end of the book, in chapter 21 and in chapter 22. Not to uh, spend a ton of time on this either. Hopefully we're familiar with it. We understand Jesus Christ personally claims these titles. If in the Old Testament it's not entirely clear when we're talking about Yahweh Elohim or Yahweh, uh, it's not always as Trinitarian precise in the Old Testament. In the New Testament it's very precise. We're talking about God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second member of Trinity. And uh, then we can go back to Isaiah and, and understand it there because the New Testament unfolds the Old. But Revelation 1.8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And this is in the Patmos vision when the Apostle John receives the Revelation, the book of Revelation. Mentioned again in chapter 2, mentioned again in chapter 21. This is significant because this is new heavens and new earth. This is after the great white throne. This is after there's no more unbelievers, right? Remember after the tribulation, All the unbelievers are killed and sent to hell, and the millennium begins with only believers to start the millennium. 
But a thousand years later, at the end of the millennium, we've got unbelievers all over the place again because of these generations that have been born in the rebellion and unsaved people. So after the millennium then, heaven and earth are destroyed. The great white throne judgment sends all the unbelievers, not to hell, but sends all the unbelievers to the lake of fire. Even death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And so we have new heavens and a new earth. All things are made new. And in that context, by the way, the only two books of the Bible that talk about the new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah and Revelation. All right, the Alpha and Omega message, it becomes important. I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Why does this earth need a sea? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. All right. Now it's in this context. Um, this is where the tears get wiped away in, in verse 4. And there's no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Those are all features of this earth. There won't be features of the new earth. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Titles for Jesus Christ, instructing John to write. Then he said to me, It is done. Isn't this great? <laughs> you thought the Tetelestai statement on the cross was powerful? He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. So th these are springs on the new earth we're talking about. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. We have the fatherhood of Jesus Christ mentioned in this verse. We have the father role that Jesus Christ has never fulfilled up till now. Even in the church age, God the Father is still doing the Father role. We're not children of Jesus Christ. We're children of God the Father. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ in the church age. But something new is happening in the new heavens and new earth, the dispensation of the fullness of times that the Apostle Paul speaks of. I will be his God and he will be my son. Jesus Christ will personally exercise all the prerogatives of God the Father for a thousand generations of those who love him in the new earth. This is the, again, Isaiah and Revelation combined. Isaiah together with uh, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Why is Jesus Christ called the eternal father in Isaiah chapter 11? Okay, or Isaiah chapter 9. All right. Oh, man, all right. Any questions on that? Bring them up on Wednesday night. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. When the nations are all terrified, that means something. And all of them together are terrified of the same thing. That means something. It means they're terrified of Jesus Christ and uh, his conquest at uh, Armageddon, his conquest at the end of the tribulation. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So uh, they're trying to encourage one another. What else can you do when... The conqueror is about to come when the sign of the Son of Man is appearing in the sky and all the other stars have fallen. All right? Well, you bet they're going to be afraid. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with a hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good, and he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. 
<laughs> All right. Remember, that's the pinnacle of what you can get with, with idolatry. If you're going to make an idol, at least make one that doesn't fall over. All right. If you think about it, there's a lot we can glean out of this. It is good. The division of labor is a marvelous thing. The cooperation under free market capitalism and other principles of Scripture, you can glean out of this. Um, you don't want, you know, you want people to specialize in, in their labor and in their expertise and in their production, and you can actually achieve some tremendous things when, when mutual cooperation occurs like that. It's uh, not a scripture that's attacking that per se, but the fact is that what, there's, what is being highlighted here is that all of humanity is coming together to jointly support their idolatry. We're dealing with a, the global cooperation of the nations in ultimate idolatry. It's like the Tower of Babel all over again. Uh, at, during the tribulation, under the rule of Antichrist, all of the nations are going to come together in a way they never have before. They're going to be united on this world. What do we have today? 192 nations, I think, today that are identified by the United Nations. And imagine, there may be fewer by then, uh, but however many there are at, during the tribulation, it's going to be all of them against Israel. It's going to be 191 against one. Even America, should we still be here, will be a part of the 191 against the one. You understand. And all the global cooperation is ultimately idolatry. They're coming together to make an idol, one that does not totter. We discussed that um, back in chapter 40 about idols that keep falling down. And when you have a man-made god of gold, if you can afford it, or silver, if you can't afford it, or wood, if you're cheap enough for that, whatever, whatever you can't afford, you get the best idol money can buy. And at the end of the, of the whole process, what do you got? You got a man-made god that hopefully doesn't fall over, see? That's why uh, the, they kept putting the ark in the, in the temple with Dagon <laughs> in, back in the judges period. And every time they put the ark in that temple with Dagon, they'd show up the next morning and the Dagon statue had fallen over. And uh, different things there. Crack up every time I read that chapter. All right. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend... Oh, it's all the titles here. All right. He's going to call Israel his servant. They're going to be his servant because Christ first is his servant. Christ is his servant and goes to the cross. So Israel will be his servant uh, when Christ sits on the crown, uh, sits on the, on the throne. And uh, Christ was a worm. Israel's a worm. We got to break this out and teach the doctrine of the worm. All right. Because I think it's, uh, it's a good doctrine. But here's Israel of the worm. <laughs> he says, yet you, uh, verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts, I say to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. All the blasphemous uh, replacement theology of the church age is going to be gone when he calls them forth for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Um. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Remember that? That was a scripture memory verse a couple of years, summers ago when we did scripture memory. Um, that was more than a couple summers ago now. All right. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. 
What's the fastest way to be removed from human history? Curse the Jewish people. Be a Gentile nation that curses the Jewish people. And, and the Lord God of Israel will remove your nation from human history. He's done it over and over and over again because God has been faithful to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, all ever since he gave the promise to Abraham. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who upholds your right hand. Who says to you, do not fear, I will help you? It's me, Yahweh, Elohim. Do not fear, you worm. Here's the doctrine of the worm. Do not, verse 14, do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Anyway, the the whole judgment goes down through verse 16. They get to become a a sharp uh, threshing sledge, double-edged. They get to pulverize the mountains. They get uh, to make the hills like chaff. Um, They're going to winnow before them. It's going to be quite a conquest. The peace that comes about will last a thousand years because of the totality of this military conquest by the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent. So Gentile nations are cooperating in their global idolatry, but Israel the worm is rescued and exalted. What a passage. So much here we need to work with. The fear. Global Gentile fear sparks complete cooperation in the construction of their final idol. As I mentioned there, the foreshadowing of this is the Tower of Babel. The fulfillment of this is going to be Antichrist himself seated in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He's going to fashion an idol. The false prophet will breathe life into that idol. In ways we don't totally understand, an idol is going to have breath. In ways that we don't understand, like God breathed the Nashama into Adam, the false prophet is going to breathe breath into the image of the beast. And however, whatever kind of life that is that comes alive, in ways we don't totally understand yet, it's going to be the pinnacle of human idolatry, human angelic idolatry. This is what allows them to cooperate together. <laughs> you know, have you ever noticed the enemies of Christ all come together? You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees were like cats and dogs fighting night and day. They hated each other, except when they could get together and cooperate by crucifying Jesus. <laughs> all right. What is it that would make a, a, a Herodian cooperate together with a, a zealot or a Sadducee or these different groups? They were constantly at odds with one another, except in their opposition to Jesus Christ. And it's the same thing, too, when it comes to the Gentile nations and their hatred for Israel. It's the same thing, too. We notice it in our day and age. Every anti-God group that's out there, you would think, why are they so united? Because they're united against biblical Christianity. They're united against Christ is what it is. And, and whatever, whatever form or fashion they found, whatever cause and crusade they found to deny the realities of Scripture, it's what, the one thing that unites them together into one mindset, into one global philosophy, political party, or what have you, is their opposition to the revealed Word of God. Again and again and again and again and again. And you think, don't you get it? You know? Why is the the, the gay rights crowd, why are they so supportive of Islam? They don't do well in Muslim countries. They get thrown off of buildings. And the militant feminists, you know, do they really want to wear the burqa? Why are they so... What is it that causes all of these various groups 
It's their hatred for Jesus Christ and they're united to defy the scriptures. In any event, we're going to see that. The world will see that in the tribulation. We won't see it. We're going to be in glory already. We're going to be at our bema. We're going to be prepared. We're going to be engaged with our Lord and our Father at the wedding supper. In any event, uh, review your notes from chapter 2. I'm not going to go back there this morning. But review your notes from chapter 2. We talked about this. The fear, crawling into holes, asking the mountains to fall on them. Just terrified because Yahweh is coming. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17. Trying to crawl into holes of the ground, let the mountains fall on them. Like they can tunnel, they can burrow deep enough. You know, it's, it's remarkable the doctrine of worm uses this kind of language. Jesus was a worm when he hung on the cross. Psalm 22. Israel is a worm. The mountains were, uh, the Gentiles were just sure they were going to stomp on that worm, right? What do you do to a worm? You stomp on them. What do you do to a cockroach, right? What do you do? You stomp on them. And all these Gentiles thought they were going to stomp on Israel the worm. The problem is, is Jesus the worm died on the cross. And Jesus the worm is coming back. All right? But their fear sparks complete cooperation in the construction of their final idol. Just as with Babel, the Lord is going to bring this United Nations endeavor to an end. If you want to read about the first United Nations building, it was the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. All right, he put an end to it. He scattered the people. He confused their languages. I believe he teleported different people groups to the different continents. All right, possibly even divided the continents at that point. To me, that's much more believable than some Siberian land bridge across to Alaska. Israel the worm will be exalted to the maximum as Yahweh's servant nation. And time and time and time again, this is the message of comfort. This is the message of salvation to the Jewish people. Through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Daniel, through Ezekiel, through all the prophets, Israel the worm is going to be exalted as Yahweh's servant nation. And this is because Jesus the worm, right? Psalm 22, 6. Jesus the worm was humbled to the maximum. He was humbled to the maximum. What happens when you're humbled? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I will exalt you at the proper time. See, Satan and his plan of program is the antithesis of humility. It's all about self-promotion. I will be great. I will do this. I will do this. There's no humility in Satan's program. Jesus came humble, born of a virgin, even when he entered into Jerusalem, his final time was that r- humble riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He didn't come as a great conqueror riding on a white horse. Antichrist is going to come as the white horse rider from Revelation, the conqueror. Because Jesus the worm was humbled to the maximum as Yahweh's servant, Messiah. Oh, and there's so much to understand here. To be the servant. You want to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ? Be a servant here on this earth. You want to be a rewarded pastor? Be a servant pastor. You want to be a rewarded Sunday school teacher? Be a servant Sunday school teacher. Whatever you do, understand it's the servant role. The greatest of you shall be the servant. Jesus was the servant. Israel will become the servant nation. Finally, they were designed to be from the Old Testament times. They will finally become the servant nation in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, Stay tuned. I mean, we're going to have this in all these upcoming weeks, chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 44. So don't be shocked. Next week, the week after, the week after that, you're going to keep getting this Israel, the servant nation. 
again and again and again. In Jeremiah 30, Israel is the servant nation. Jeremiah 46, Israel, the servant nation, ministering to the Gentile nations around them. Okay? Seven Gentiles will grab the, the skirt of a Jew and say, teach me. You're a Jew. I want to learn the, the stewardship role of Israel in the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22.6, I love this. Jesus, the worm, he's hanging on the cross. Have you ever studied Psalm 22? David wrote it a thousand years before Christ, but it's a first-person account of the cross. David, I believe, was brought in a vision forward to the cross. And as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, I believe the Holy Spirit brought David's consciousness to see, to witness what Jesus was going through. And then David returned to his body in 1000 BC and composed Psalm 22. The Holy Spirit gave us this psalm. It's a powerful psalm. Talking about uh, being crucified, his pier- the piercing of his hands and his feet, the uh, enemies around him, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted this when he was on the cross. And in verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And here's the taunt. Unbelievers will hit you with the same taunt. Well, if God really loved you, he wouldn't, you wouldn't be hanging there. Say, if God, you know why you have those problems? You have those problems because God doesn't love you. If, if God delighted in you, you wouldn't be on that cross. And all the attacks about God and, and why are you trusting in Him? Did God really say? And all the doubts upon His Word. I think by this time, Satan realized it was a mistake to put Him up there. And he was doing what he could do to get Him down. Remember, the wisdom of this age, the, the, the rulers of this age didn't understand God's wisdom. For if they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, we're told. So at a certain point, I believe Satan realized, wait a minute, this is a trap. <laughs> so we have it here. Job 25 is interesting because I think it reflects the angelic uh, arrogance over the realm of humanity. It reflects upon the fallen angels and their disgust for humanity. The angels think of us as worms or maggots. Bildad the Shuhite was reflecting demonic teaching in his words. He was, he was listening to spirits in the night watches and reflecting demonic wisdom in his daily uh, speeches. Here's Bildad the Shuhite. And uh, what does he say? He says uh, about how uh, God is so unfair. How can man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of woman? Right? Raise your hand if your mom was a woman. (laughs) You know, you maggot. You unclean thing. You know the blood that birthed you? Even If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, clearly if Yahweh is not impressed with us fallen angels, how much less man that maggot and son of man that worm okay this is job 25 6 and i think the doctrine of the worm has to incorporate the contrast between angelity and humanity and the role 
that God has to create the angels first, these mighty beings of light and power, and then to create humanity second, these pathetic creatures of dust, and then to glorify the pathetic creatures of dust. How the last can become first and the first become last. And he chooses not the things that are, but the things that are not. Remember, not many mighty, not many strong, not many wise. And he chooses the foolish, debased things of this world. He, he exalts humanity. Before there was even one angel created, God the Son already had his human spirit united to his deity in the hypostatic union of humanity to the, as the God-man. Angels didn't have that. All right. So Jesus the worm was humble to the maximum. And we have this role of the servant. And as we work through these chapters, it's a good exercise. When you see servant, ask yourself, is this the Messiah? Is this the nation? Because the Messiah is the servant, but also the nation is the servant. And depending on the context, depending on the passage, you want to be able to sort that out. It may also apply to a type of Christ in terms of Cyrus. Cyrus is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of the servant. He also is described in servant language. So Yahweh the worm, Jesus the worm, was humbled to the maximum as Yahweh's servant Messiah. Isaiah 42, 1. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Next week we'll get a look at this. Next week we'll look at this. We'll start with this next Sunday morning. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Isaiah 42, 1. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay? This is him. He's prophesied here in Isaiah. When Jesus was baptized at the river Jordan, the heavens were open and God the Father said, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All right? He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. We'll talk about his humility next week and how he came as the servant, how he died on the cross. Chapter 49, again, the servant, the faithfulness of our Savior. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He has made me my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. All right, we want to understand first advent, no conquest. Second advent, no manger. <laughs> All right. When he comes back the second time, it's, it's, trust me, he's not laying aside his privileges. He's not setting aside his glory. When he comes the second time, it's going to be with power and great glory, with outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. I'm looking forward to that. So we have his servant, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. Here's the servant. And of course, he goes to the cross. Isaiah 52, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Why? Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what has not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. Because he suffered in first advent, he will conquer at second advent, and, and the Gentiles just have to shut their mouths. Moves on into chapter 53, more of the servant. 
Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. You, have you ever studied the doctrine of propitiation? You know why God the Father was satisfied with Jesus Christ on the cross? How he's the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for the whole world. You ever study 1 John 2 too? Study the doctrine of propitiation. Understand the substitutionary death. Know why it is that God was satisfied. It's this passage that tells us why the Father was satisfied. All the other passages just tell us the fact that he was satisfied. Say, okay, good enough for you, great. But why was the Father satisfied? It's unfolded here with the suffering, the anguish of his soul. As a result of the anguish of Jesus Christ's soul, God the Father will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. It comes down to what qualified him to do the work that he did on the cross. And it comes down to his knowledge, his full awareness and acceptance of our sorrow. He is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's what qualified him to do the work. Okay? More on that in the coming weeks. Matthew 12, my beloved son, my servant. Philippians 2, he humbled himself. He came as a servant. We're supposed to imitate that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he, exalt, he exists in the form of God and not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't follow the arrogance of Satan who said, I will be like the Most High God. Even though he was God, yet he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took upon the form of the servant. Philippians 2, 7. And we're supposed to imitate that. We're supposed to emulate that humility. Verses 17 through 20. Isaiah pronounces yet another. How many of these have we had? Isaiah pronounces yet another vision of environmental blessings upon the millennial earth. Verses 17 through 20 of Isaiah 41. Yet another vision of environmental blessings. Something else Satan likes to do. He likes to co-opt the uh, environment. It's God's business. Creation itself is not waiting for Greenpeace. Creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God in glory. We saw that last hour in Romans chapter 8. And creation groans until we are revealed in glory with Jesus Christ. 17 through 20. The afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none. Their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights. Man, how'd that river get there? There wasn't a river there before. There's a river there now. Springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, dry land, fountains of water. There'll be water all over the place. Right now, they've got water's at a premium. Right now, in fact, there's disputes over the Golan Heights and there's water sources that feed into the Jordan River that could be a source of conflict between um, Israel and Syria or Israel and Lebanon. They're not going to have water issues in the Millennial Kingdom. There's going to be water all over the place. I'll put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. See, some of these uh, places are so inhabitable, all you get are these scraggly little trees, not in the Millennium. Millennium will have the, the tallest trees imaginable. We'll make our redwoods look wimpy. All right. I'm spoiled. I grew up in the Northwest. So talk to me after church about trees. I'll tell you some stories. Trees you can drive through. All right. Real trees. 
But now notice, what is the point in having such a glorious environmental impact? You want to talk about an environmental impact statement? Right here. Environmental impact statement of what happens on this earth when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David. And why? So we can just say, ooh, that's pretty. No. So we can bow and reverence and go, ooh, the Lord God of Israel, He is God. He is our Creator. The Creator, Redeemer. That they may, here's purpose clause in verse 20, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well. Boy, that takes a lot of study. <laughs> That's a lot of work. You mean I got to see and recognize and consider and gain insight? How many times do I got to cycle doctrine through my frame of reference before I finally have all this? <laughs> that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. What a privilege. What a privilege. Even in the creation restoration, even in reversing Noah's curse, we're going to have animal peace again, we're going to have longer life spans again. We're gonna, the, the Noahic judgment is reversed for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And humanity will go, wow. And it will humble them to identify with the glory of Yahweh seated on that throne. It is the hand of the Lord that has done this. Well, the millennium is going to be quite a unique blend. You ever think of it this way? The millennium will be a unique blend of natural revelation, special revelation, and the personal presence revelation of Jesus Christ himself. The personal presence revelation of Jesus Christ himself. I'm not going to take you through this just because of time. We, we know the difference between natural revelation and special revelation, right? Natural revelation is creation. We see his handiwork. We, man is without excuse in Romans chapter 1. Through what has been made, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. You, you see order in the universe and say, that can't be an accident. All right? There's design in this. What designer designed this? And so we have in natural revelation, we have sufficient information to bring us to God consciousness. We don't have sufficient information to lead us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can sit under a tree and ponder the stars or gaze at flowers or whatever else you sniff flowers, whatever else you want to do. Natural revelation will never tell you that you're a sinner on the road to hell and you need the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. That comes through special revelation. That is the spoken prophets and the written canon. Special revelation. Is provided by inspiration, things which I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared. Special revelation. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So we, we're, we're familiar with natural revelation, special revelation. We got that. We've had that doctrine for years. But we're also adding now the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> all right? The revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't stop when he's seated on David's throne. He is revealed when he appears at his appearing and he continues to be the revelation. We continue to have our revelation, Romans 8, the revelation of the sons of, of God. The personal presence revelation is that which is manifest through Jesus Christ, second advent and sovereign rule. Think about it. When he was on the earth the first time, he would say, look, something greater than the temple is here. 
Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the, the Sabbath is here. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That first Advent ministry of Jesus Christ was a unique dispensation, a unique, well, it was an age within the dispensation of Israel. Very unique. The age of the incarnation was not the age of promise or the age of law. All right, it was the age of the personal incarnation of the Messiah to Israel. Likewise, the second Advent will have natural revelation, will have special revelation, will have personal presence revelation of Jesus Christ and all that he does and all that he teaches. All right. I'm running out of time, but you can look up 1 Corinthians 1.7, 1 Peter 1.7 and 13, Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. Understand his personal presence. What is revealed when we're with him? That's why his reigning name, by the way, is King Emmanuel, God with us. He's never uh, accepted that title, not yet. But he will, when he's seated on David's throne, he will be King Emmanuel, seated on David's throne. All right, that's 17 through 20. I've got to finish the chapter. 21 through 29. Present your case. Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Notice he's already enthroned, but he's still inviting them to make their case. He is Yahweh, he is the king of Jacob, and he says, present your case. Make your case. I like this. Yahweh directly challenges the fallen angels to do what only he can do. He says, make your case. He'll listen to the argument. All right, convince me. <laughs> you know, I do, I do something similar when people try to tell me whatever. You know, they try to convince me maybe that the gift of tongues is still valid for the church age or whatever. And I say, well, <clears throat> all right, make your case. <laughs> convince me. Show me from the scriptures because I will accept the scriptures. All right. I'm not going to say that I know better than you or I know everything or my mind is closed or whatever. I'll say, all right, show me, okay? I should have been born in Missouri, right? Uh, just show me. Make your case. If you can prove to me from the Scriptures, whatever it is you're trying to prove to me from the Scriptures, then I will submit to the Scriptures. And I'll change my theology tomorrow if I'm under the conviction of the Scriptures. Okay? I'm not going to rigidly cling to something because the colonel taught it or Ralph Braun taught it or I taught it in the past and I'm on record. Ooh, that's embarrassing. You teach something and somebody pulls an MP3 file out from 2001 and says, well, you know, you taught this 13 years ago, 14 years ago, and you said this. I don't remember that. Okay. <laughs> I guess I was wrong back then. I, I learned something in the last 14 years. What have you learned? All right. But I love this, this challenge, present your case. Bring forward your strong arguments. Bring your A-game, we might say, right? Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. If you're really gods, you should be able to tell the end from the beginning. You should be able to tell the things that have not yet done. See, this is exposes their limitations. Angels, as mighty as they are, are finite temporal beings. They're moving through time as we are, one day by day. Okay, One day per day. So, what's happening? What's coming up next? Let them bring forth and declare what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Okay? In other words, don't just tell me what happened, but tell me how that prepared for what's happening next. 
Tell me how that's a foreshadowing of what's still prophetic. I mean, it's one thing to recite history and name date dates and people and all whatever, you know. But show me the divine hand in it whereby this is now a foreshadowing of this thing and this thing and this thing. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's indeed do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. I really want to tremble if you're the gods you say you are. Behold, you are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. What a rebuke. Even with complete restraint lifted, Satan is given free reign in the tribulation. He can even pose a resurrection miracle. Somehow, he accomplishes the pseudo-resurrection of the Antichrist. Talk about free reign that God gives Satan permission to even accomplish a physical resuscitation. Are you kidding me? Satan's never had that kind of power before. And like I say, breathing life into that idol image. Wow. And even at the pinnacle of what Satan has ever accomplished with Antichrist, God says, behold, you're of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. I, on the other hand have aroused one from the north. He has come. Remember that, that I will? He wanted to take his seat in the recesses of the north. Remember that? Remember when he said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's not sitting anymore. He's now aroused from the north. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name. He will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as a potter treads the clay. There's no manger at second advent. He's coming to whoop. He's coming to, to, to conquer. Okay? He who has declared this from the beginning that we might... Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know or from former times that he, we may say he is right? When Jesus comes at second advent, he's got a complete library of prophecies that says he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this. What have the fallen angels got? Nothing. Nothing. Sure, they got their forgeries and their frauds, their Nostradamus predictions, their Islamic eschatology. They got all this other stuff. Mormons have dreams of what their utopia is going to be like. The Soviets had dreams of what their communist utopia was going to be like. None of those demonic prophecies are going to be true. But when Jesus arrives, he's got chapter and verse he's fulfilling. All right. No, they're not gods. There's only one. It's not them. It's, it's Yahweh. So, uh, verse 27. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. Uh, so there was a first advent. But when I looked, there is no one. Remember, Messiah was cut off and had nothing. And there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. That's all you got following deceptions and the doctrines of demons. Nothing. But God is accomplishing what only God can do. I like this. The the tribulation of Israel will be a judicial proceeding with creation called to witness. Creation will be called to testify. Not here in this passage, but in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. His chosen servant will testify. Jesus Christ will offer his testimony. 
Israel, the servant nation, will be called to testify. All of these witnesses. And guess what? The testimony is all the same. The testimony is all the same. They will all confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, goodness, Micah chapter 6. How does this hour go by so fast? Micah chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. Creation is brought to testify. They will be entering their testimony as God judges Israel in the tribulation. Then he has a testimony of his chosen servant in Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. When Jesus comes at second advent, he will have prophecy with him about the new heavens and new earth. Chapter 43 is the testimony of his servant nation. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen. This is bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes and the deaf even though they have ears. Also the angels, the final testimony, the final witness, if you will, also called to testify will be the fallen angels, placed under subpoena and compelled to present their best case. And God gets so taunting with these fallen angels, He even lets them cooperate, <laughs> right? You know, in law enforcement, let me give you a clue. When we would do interviews in law enforcement, it was standard, normal. Separate everybody. And interview them separately. Get their individual stories separately. And then you crisscross, you go back to different ones and you say, well, hey, you know, so-and-so told me this and so-and-so told me that. And what about this? And then you start picking apart the stories. You find the inconsistencies. You don't shove them in the same room and let them come up with the same alibi and let them tell the same story. And, and then you, you know, shock. They're, they're telling the same story. Well, yeah, you put them all together in the same room. Of course, they made up the same lie. They're, they're sticking to it, Right? But in the second advent of Jesus Christ, God is so taunting these fallen angels. He says, you guys, go ahead and work together on this. <laughs> go ahead and combine your efforts. Make this a group project. God doesn't care. Satan and all the fallen angels together, one third of all the angels followed after Satan. And he says, you all can work together on this and you're not going to do what only Yahweh Elohim can do. It's a powerful rebuke. And so it's here in verses 21 through 29. It's going to come back in chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. I am the first, I am the last. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Let him count it in order. In chapter 45 and verse 21, he says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. Oh, that's powerful. We'll get to that in four weeks. Chapter 45. Father, I thank you for the book of Isaiah. I thank you for this message. Father, I pray. I pray, Father, that we might be equipped that we might have a sense of urgency 
in our evangelism. We presently now in this church age, Father, we are your witnesses. We are your stewards. We have a message to those who are blind, though they have eyes, and are deaf, though they have ears. We have a message of hope and eternal life this world does not have. And I pray, Father, that we would be eager. How beautiful are the feet of those with good news. So, Father, cause us to find our applications in this book. Uh, yes, it's interesting to think about, and it's important that we identify with our eschatology and the things to come, the future. We want to be oriented, Father. We have to be oriented to our eschatology. But in the meantime, Father, here and now on a daily basis, cause us to have a, a fervent desire to proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world. If there's anyone sitting here this morning, Father, that does not know your Son, that does not understand that apart from Christ, they do not have life, they do not have hope, they do not have eternal life, I pray that this might be the day that they see the idols for what they are, they see the glory of your Son for what it is. Right here, right now, right where they're sitting. They don't need to walk an aisle, they don't need to be baptized on Saturday. They just need to sit here, right here, right now, and understand that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. They can trust in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. Father, I do thank you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.